Welcome to Between the Lines, which is a series of conversations devoted to translation, its pleasures, and, uh, and translation as an agent of creativity in general. I'm Timothy Matthews, and I'm delighted here to be with uh, Steve Waters, um, whom I've known for a very long time, and is a, a playwright of some renown, uh, whose plays have been performed at the, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, at the Gate, at the Bush, at the Dolmar Warehouse, yeah as well as many other places, at the Crucible as well, I think. Mm. And you've also done radio and TV plays, um, and currently teaching creative writing at the UEA. So, Steve, I can think of a number of ways, I think, in which translation might be of interest to your work. Mm. Uh, but we, uh, one, one uh, is that you've actually translated a play uh, by the French writer Philippe Mien, if I get his name right, mm. Mignana. Yes. Uh, who, um, well, tell me how that came about. Yeah, well, I should instantly... Uh, qualify that especially for all the hardcore translators out there in the sense that uh, what happened there was the National Theatre mm. like 10 years ago now I think uh, had a scheme called ch channels or channels or whatever you might call it monches and uh, they um, they sort of did a sort of speed dating exercise where they matched British playwrights with uh, French playwrights of different levels of sort of emergence and I was lucky enough to be matched with Philippe and yeah, my caveat is that, as is often the case with British theatre, which I know is controversial in some circles, it, we, we began with a literal translation mm. of Philippe's work, um, which was actually done by a terrific guy called Chris Campbell, who's now literary manager at the Royal Court, um, and a great figure for bringing in um, sort of non-Anglo-Saxon uh, voices into British theatre. Um, but what was very special about the process was actually Philippe then came to the UK. I sort of did a version of the play with Chris's assistance, and then we... We read Philippe's version in French, so I had the opportunity to listen to its sort of uh, rhythms and its musicality, and it was extremely interesting, strange triptych of a play. Lots of it's called habitat, habitat, or habitation in French, yeah. and uh, yeah, habitats in my rendering, and uh, you know, because I mean, it, it, it raised a really interesting issue, which will probably crop up later on about how when you when you engage with a writer from another nationality, you're engaging with their theatre practice too. Uh, in a way, you're translating. Um, your notion of how writing works um, for the audience. Uh, you're translating their version into your version. And that in itself raises those questions about how, you know, that's never a straightforward process. So, I mean, for instance, Philippe's piece begins with this extraordinary um, overture, if you like, which is a series of two or three sentence um, dramaticules, I suppose you might call them, which just simply describe a series of scenarios, almost as if they would be sort of text on a postcard mm. um, and they're located all across the body of France with all and, and in a sense the sort of principle seems to be a surrealist principle of the most bizarre place name <laughs> the most kind of uh, incongruous material that's what's <clears throat> assembled and I knew for a fact that that will probably not work in the same way in English without using something that came from the poetry of our own toponyms, as it were. and so I did notice you changed an yes. awful lot of the name places yes. and, and company names as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because that was the other thing that was very distinctive and interesting about it, that, as I say, it was a triptych, and each section was quite self-contained in terms of its aesthetic. And in fact, there was only one bit which was actually really difficult to translate, which was... Uh, a section where an actress talks to two minions, really, and it's it's a very meandering, beautiful, 
hard to read kind of piece of text. It's very hard to imagine that piece of text in British theatre, mm. uh, not least because we would find that type of actress <laughs> almost unbearable, I think. There's almost yeah, the notion yeah. there that that was very difficult to carry across without making it comics, puncturing, mm. uh, and I don't think we quite got that right. Whereas the third section, which was my favourite from the text, was in fact based on the real case, which was dramatised by Emmanuel Carrier, I think, in The um, the Adversary, mm. about a man called Jean-Paul, Jean-Claude Interam. He had another name. This was the name that Jean, uh, Philippe gave him, who, who essentially uh, was a, a complete uh, fantasist and, mm. and dreamed up a job and a career and a life and constructed his family around it and then to, proceeded to kill them all and himself. It was a notorious case of yes, the Jura. Uh, does talk about in his novels. Yes, yeah. that's yeah. right. I mean, it's obviously, and there's also the film uh, Time Out by uh, Laurent Conte, which tells the same story. Um, but it, it, that was another interesting example of translation because he'd uh, gone some way towards fictionalizing it, but not quite all the way. So it was a kind of mixture of actuality and allegory, really. Mm. And again, for me, it felt like, well, I need to find an equivalent reality for that rather than simply rendering it with all its kind of very precise sociological detail um, in its original French setting. So it, it seemed to me very analogous to a series of cases where men killed their families on the borders of England and Wales, why they are particularly, but there was something about the whole geography of it. And so I, I felt that was my task in that case, that you, you're trying to find emotional or sociological equivalents as much as linguistic ones um, but what was delightful was to have Philippe's in the room to explore that idea and he, we read my version we read his version and uh, and yeah it had a career it went on at the gate it went on at the Traverse Theatre in um, Scotland so it, it had kind of an interesting afterlife as well but also fascinating I'm sure this will crop up later on everywhere it was received the usual debate began which was can we really understand French theatre in England you know, even in that version, it was almost like he's deemed to be. I, know, I don't know if this is actually true, but he was described at the time as the Tom Stoppard of French theatre. And I don't think Mignana possibly has the same prevalence as Stoppard, but he's a big fish. Mm. And yet nobody knew about him at all in, in the UK. And this was his first, you know, entree really onto the British stage. And But that's always a trial, isn't it, in, in British culture? So does it work for us? Is it, you know, can we really understand French theatre? and well, Mignanin in particular is a less issues-driven type of type of playwright, isn't he? Very, yeah. very language-driven, in fact. Yes, I think. yes. You know, one of the things I picked up, he said about writing plays, um, uh, reconstituer la parole ordinaire, he says in French, which is somehow to reconstruct ordinary speaking. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. And his plays seem to be driven by that. And uh, I wondered, actually, if that was something that drew you to him as well. Well, I mean, as I say, it was a slight arranged marriage. And I suppose one has to say that, in a sense, I was matched with him. Yeah. And, and I, But I did find him a very appealing writer because, in a sense, that's a, that's a beautiful phrase there. Uh, if you look at the kind of montage type structure of the piece Indeed. and and then it's very heterogeneous each section is quite different so the mm. first section which is this businessman talking at great length is a verbatim play i mean it was clearly he stuck a tape recorder on and yeah. he simply transcribed it and i did very little to change that um although i did notice there were some interesting political resonances in there which he hadn't capitalized on and, you know that was his choice but uh uh so that he just, the surface of language, as you say, uh, was, was something that really turned him on. It does me too. But I suppose, again, it's that cultural difference, I suppose, the degree to which British theatre is very um, 
attuned to the topical, there is a quality to which it, not always and everywhere, but it often conceives of itself having a political uh, mission. Um, and I mean, I have a complicated relationship to that, but that is something that interests me too. So I suppose something happens in the, you know, it's almost a bit of dye in the water, isn't it? If something happens to the colour of his work when it comes over here. Mm. And I mean, even, I mean, as Chris made this point, Chris Campbell, who was the literal translator, even the language of business in France is different from the language of business yeah. in the UK, isn't it? It's much more, um, not servile, but there's a degree of sort of deference and formality in it, which would seem incredibly anachronistic here. Um, and they, even that becomes a very interesting um, question and a choice that you make when you try that formality, it. even the formality in French business language, I think, or, or institutional language, has also become so spontaneous as to have a naturalness about it. Yes, uh, yes. So I, I, Whereas here it looks stilted and, and yeah. sort of arch, in a yes, way. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And it would make the person <laughs> speaking a case as opposed to somebody who's symptomatic and normal. I think those are the things we're trying to find equivalence for, aren't you, rather yeah. than necessarily, yeah. you know... I think that that's where bad translation is a false friend, where you're absolutely literal to the original text mm. and therefore it comes across as utterly bizarre mm. and unreadable. And yet I feel there is there was something I could recognise in what it was doing. Mm. So there's a kind of historical dimension as well to translation then, isn't there? You're talking about recognising certain features, recognising certain ways of behaving, ways of thinking. Yes, for yes. Which one would be trying to find the equivalent. Yes. Um, there's quite what another connection I'm trying to make here but I'm getting in general towards mm. a kind of historical dimension in your plays mm. and uh, uh, trying to um, I mean could, could we perhaps start with uh, mm. with, with ignorance mm. Uh, mm. which I've been looking at ignorance stroke jahil, jahiliya yeah uh, yeah um, which is itself a translation exercise isn't mm. it because mm. it's a, a, a play with a title in English and a title yes. in Arabic yes yes um, yes and also a historical dimension uh, mm. because it deals with the uh, the, the, the Egyptian thinker mm. uh, Saeed Qutub mm. um, but um, uh, what, one thing at a time perhaps perhaps we could just start with the title the fact that it has a, <laughs> a, an English and Arabic title yes which was another debatable point I mean mm. you cannot tell I cannot tell you the arguments I had with box office <laughs> the sense that you know Hampstead Theatre people would feel put off if yeah. they had to say this strange threatening foreign word um, so why don't we just call it ignorance well that was the whole point the equivalence and indeed, it, the, the the mistranslation, even in the title, because you could argue that, I mean, and I'm no Arab scholar um, at all, uh, but you know, Jahiliya possibly means age of ignorance. It has all sorts of um, really quite complex connotations that circulate around it. And that's sort of what the play is about. Mm. Um, you know, can the kind of body of thought associated with a particular Egyptian individual who's now very much seen as a sort of forefather of Islamism, can that possibly be made comprehensible? And, in, and what would happen when it was made comprehensible? You know, what are the losses and gains? Uh, because clearly ignorance itself is an extraordinarily rebarbative word. Mm. Uh, you put it in a title at your peril, really, because it, it feels extremely judgmental and, you know, puritanical. And there's something about the power of that word, which is... Um, which, of course, drew me to the whole project in some mm. respects. Mm. Jahilia is a much more mysterious, um, suggestive, open-ended word from this culture. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the whole project was uh, came out of a, uh, an encounter, an obsession with Kutub and his writings as a way into trying to understand something that seemed to be so incomprehensible, which was Islamism, um, from the point of view of, 
you know, Western culture feeling very threatened by it. Um, and uh, I mean, the play began when I was years ago reading Paul Berman's book, Terror and Liberalism, which was, came out very shortly after 9-11. And I mean, incidentally, I just quickly say that Paul Berman, I don't agree with him at all. The whole book is a sort of argument for the invasion of Iraq. But um, in the context of that, he, he does this extraordinary things where he, he located and identified Qutub and his tenure in America, because Qutub went to America in 1949. As he was rescued in 1966, wasn't he? Yes, that's so right. So quite a, uh, well, obviously 40 or 50 years ago. Yeah, and, uh, so yes. That whole historical dimension is, is key to the play. Well, well, I think it's a very interesting story in itself, because, I mean, I travelled to the town, he went to Greeley in Colorado, he spent many months there at a sort of, what was then a sort of teacher training institution. And, uh, you know, of course, a sort of myth has assembled around that since sort of, 9-11 people weren't aware of it hitherto and then suddenly became highly aware of it when they became aware of this lineage from Qutub to his brother Muhammad Qutub from there to uh, you know um, various figures associated with Al-Qaeda and that kind of point of origin back in the United States at its most kind of apparently appealing in the late 40s was a shock. I mean, it was this intellectual shock, trauma almost. And so a lot of interest and attention circulated around this very, very unknowable period of time. What actually happened? What did he think? What was going on? Berman was probably one of the first to pick it up. And why, again, going back to why he then presented this figure as quite an interesting figure to engage with was his presentation of him as a sort of Islamist Sartre. Mm. You know, so there's a sense that he was an existentialist thinker, really, that he diagnose the sort of um, complexity of living in modernity and certainly the little well you know as much as I could read of Qutub certainly clarified that and sort of confirmed that I mean his his trajectory from his sort of quite liberal writings in the 30s to his more and more Islamist writings in the 50s and 60s um, you know you're looking at two or three different types of people um, and certainly views of the world so there, there was something that happened to him in the late 40s it may have happened in America or at least America may have confirmed that but none of these things are kind of completely pinned down in the play I mean the no. play in some respects is about the mystery of all of that mm. uh, and as you say the hi- the history I mean it's probably one of the first times I've actually engaged with history as opposed to the contemporary um, in a, in, you know the longer view was something I, th- I thought was very necessary and very un- uh, re- sort of thin on the ground in the discussion around the war on terror you felt like you, you know if you, you it was very much a kind of locked down discussion and it felt that Qutub's ambiguity was a way of trying to kind of open that discussion up. Mm. I mean, there's very little of him in translation in any case, isn't there? Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, there's, uh, there's a volume of, of his collected or something, a, a Qutub reader perhaps, something of that sort. Well, there's, there's, there's a bit more than that, actually. I mean, I mean the, yeah. in the shadow of uh, the Quran, Which is uh, his great... Uh, yes, uh, magnum opus. 30-volume yeah. uh, commentary on the Quran. Yeah, yeah, which he wrote over a period of 10 years, much, yeah. much of the time he was, uh, you know, in, in jail under NASA. Yeah. Uh, the, that is available, and I can't pretend I've read every single volume. Yeah. It is an exhaustive and an exhausting right. work. Okay. Milestones uh, and its various for, forms, the pathway, you know, the, the signs on the journey... Uh, that has been, I mean, multiply translated in very differently. And I mean, in a sense, the translation there is the, the thing, because as people say, it's like the Islamists, what is to be done? It's almost like their version of Lenin. Mm-hmm. Um, but more interestingly, books like The, Village, the Child from the Village, which is an extraordinary uh, autobiographical piece that he wrote uh, in the sort of mid-40s. Uh, there are a number of American scholars like John Calvert and... Um, 
uh, William, I can't remember his second name, but John Calvert, certainly, who'd been involved in bringing his work into English way before 9-11, incidentally, as a, as a sort of post-colonial thinker. Yeah. And of course, after 9-11, those, those terms change and shift very mm. significantly. Um, so you can get hold of quite a lot of his stuff, but you have to rummage around. Right, right. So I did a bit of rummaging around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what the play, I mean, interesting, <clears throat> you mentioned that there are so many different dimensions in which I could, could be read, including the post-colonial. And what, mm -hmm. what your play does is, is uh, uh, going back to that historical dimension, you know, the sort of the, the Islam versus the West argument has, has become very, 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 very... You know, atrophied, hasn't mm, it? Mm, mm, uh, and the fact that he's uh, in in part of the play, he is in Crete in, in in the US in 1949. Yes, yes. Uh, does show that his sort of transition from thinking uh, uh, about some more open relation to the West to some very closed relation. Yes, to the West. yes. And, uh, and that's an evolution rather than a, a you know um, a received idea that he comes with. Yeah, I mean, this is the. I mean, in a sense, as you as you're alluding to, there's two tiers to the play, and one is a contemporary story in which a, a young Egyptian woman comes to apparently do a PhD with a rather uh, sort of resistant uh, British academic who who has been resident in Cairo, and it becomes apparent there's a heavy history between them, and and but but more importantly, they hammer out these ambiguities mm. because if you like, for her. The wish is that, and for those who want to sort of offer an orthodox reading, um, which is very much something that circulates in certain circles of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, there is the sense that Qutub always knew. He went to the West almost, as it were, to kind of resist the West. Mm. Um, and so the terms in which he, he, he travelled, the terms and the way in which he was... Um, way in which he lived when he was there and, and what he said about it when he came back must all add up to one reading of, uh, you know, Christ in the Wilderness or something of that mm. nature. This um, is in the view of the young PhD yeah, student. Yeah, the young PhD the student. And I, and I think that probably quite faithfully represents views of a certain strand in um, contemporary Islamist circles. Um, whereas Philip, the, the kind of academic who she ends up with, has a much more nuanced and uh, complicated account of of what happened when he was there but the point is they're both in a sense debating over an absence um what becomes interesting as the play goes on is this invented cache of letters that i've created mm. Um, mm. which uh creates which in a way offers no further clarification in some respects it, it kind of offers confirmation of both their theses uh in a sense what it offers is a complex account of a man in crisis um, You've also invented a, a letter that's been suppressed. Yes, that's right. Never to be read, never to be seen. Um, and But, you know, what's quite interesting is that what we have to go on are some letters, largely to his brother, and a very, very um, brief newspaper, well, a journal article that he wrote sort of two or three years later called The America IFC, um, which, I mean, I cannibalised, <laughs> as you could imagine. But what's interesting about that is it's extremely ambiguous. And it's full of wonderfully juicy things for the writer, where you have this feeling there's a story behind this, but it's very unclear what it actually is, where he talks about women coming to him in the middle of the night, possibly sent by the CIA, the FBI, mm. and uh, women talking to him about sex as a merely biological matter. So some things which sound like they are genuine echoes of, of real experience. Other things which are almost a sort of culture critique you might get from Adorno or something mm. like that you know America is such a mindless kind of you know mechanical civilization another reason I found him strangely appealing as a thinker because he has this sort of pessimistic and uh, extremely disenchanted view of modernity and western modernity particularly um, 
But then you get things which couldn't possibly refer to real events, or at least if they did, he has a very heightened vision of them. So, for instance, at one point he talks about the there's a point when he's in America where Hassan al-Banna, who was the founding figure of the Muslim Brotherhood, is was killed in in Cairo um, by clearly by assassins from the, the current the, the government of the day, um, and he says that. People were celebrating in the streets of New York because he was in New York at the time. Mm. And there was sort of hats in the air and jubilation mm. at the death of Hassan al-Banna. And you think, well, nobody would have known who Hassan al-Banna was mm. in New York at the time. Uh, yeah. And so clearly that's either a piece of propaganda or possibly a sort of something more interesting, which is a, a, a paranoid view of an experience which, in a sense, starts to add up. If, as you read the text, you think, well, you know, you can derive a kind of character from that account of his experience. And it is somebody who's in a state of siege, if you like, um, sexually, socially, in other respects. On the other hand, this is a person who, if you like, joined in with the young undergraduates around him to contribute an article to their, their journal, Fulcrum, which I managed to read when I was in Greeley. And, uh, so you've got this person who's tugged to and thrown, and that seemed to me very moving and interesting mm. um, but would still mystery there's, there's no solution to what actually he felt and well, I think there seems to be for, for the little that I've gathered there, there's a sort of evolution in his thinking anyway isn't yeah. there yeah um, I mean, you mentioned a kind of you know an, an, an Islamist existentialist as it mm. were you know uh, would, I suppose the equivalent would be a Catholic existentialist yes yes it is dominated by by obviously God, you know, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yes, and he he seems to change, doesn't he, from thinking that uh, um, you know society all should be organised around the, the pure in heart, mm, uh, mm, and mm. the rest should be excluded in some way, to thinking that uh, uh, in, in in a proper Quran-based society that there would be no obedience to anybody. No, you know, no, people would just obey God, as it were. Yes, and it's extremely utopian. Yes, yes, utopian yeah, existentialist yeah, yeah. view. To that, you take your own responsibility yeah. for 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 the for what is what is it, uh, a pre-existent reality, but mm. that which is the, the existence of God. But you're taking your own responsibility for that. Yes, you are responsible to no one. Well, that's uh, I think that's absolutely right. And what's also interesting, you mentioned the Catholic existentialism. One of the few Western thinkers he cites is Tyler Duchardin. Okay. I, mean, I don't know his work, but you know he he obviously was a sort of interwar, post-war Catholic kind of yeah. rightist, if yeah. you like, of yeah. that nature. Um, but yeah, I mean his key concept in a way, Jahilia is um, just is a is a way of. It has, it's a number of different functions and it's described in lots of different ways in his work and in the commentary on his work. But one of the things that it offers at its worst is a blank check to suggest to anybody who wants to resist in the contemporary world that they have in a way a kind of clerical license to them because he, in a sense, anathemizes contemporary reality as a pagan state of pre-Mohammedan ignorance um, and the days of ignorance. Um, and that, in a sense, particularly has a as a pertinence to those who are finding themselves, as were the case in Egypt in the 50s and 60s, under an ostensibly Arab regime, but nevertheless, even one that had an element of Islamist or an Islamic set of values, how would they be dissenters in that context? Well, they kind of needed a sort of, not quite a fatwa, but something which enabled them to say that that government was also an enemy and a target. And that, that idea was taken very literally, obviously, by Al-Qaeda in Algeria and places like that, latterly. Um, Islamist groups rather than Al-Qaeda. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's the other side of it, I think, is the term Hakimiyah, I can't remember the actual term, but which is the idea that 
what happens at the moment is pure oppression mm. um, because human laws in a sense um, you know make utterly irresistible human values and what what people really need is rule by God when when they have rule by God they'll be free but they'll also be as you say in a state rather like Lenin after politics they'll be in a state where law and goodness and justice flow naturally from the self um, and, and he in a way people often talk about oh there's been no reformation in Islam but in some respects a figure like Qutub might be equivalent of Luther because mm. he's took Very it upon so. himself to be the kind of person who commented directly on the text as opposed to any uh, so. you know Al-Azhar or the Imams mm. and so forth so yeah I think that idea of wresting truth away from authority and yeah. reinventing it in a way that to me very much resembled you know the English revolutionaries in the mm. 17th century mm. that as you say has a very a scarily utopian quality because of course there's boundarylessness to, to that I mean that's why I think Milestones is so influential because it's so vague you know, and it's a sense there's a crisis, there's, you know, there's a solution, which is Islam, but in what form and how should it be implemented? But none of those things are spoken of in great detail. What is spoken of is the crisis, mm. the existential crisis. And, and of course, that resonates because we all feel <laughs> pushed this way and that. Is that one of the fundamental meanings of, uh, of ignorance and jelly, yeah, which is which is crisis yeah i think i think alienation you could say you know yeah. i mean she, yeah. Layla gives a sort of account of it when she's pushed halfway through and you realize that she's indicting every single aspect of modern mm. life uh, sexuality you know political corruption uh, which of course she sees manifest everywhere in her tenure in london um and and elsewhere in cairo too because she's somebody who's bringing the kind of the message of the Arab Spring to bear upon, but but recognizing that that isn't simply a liberal message, um, it's 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 an attempt to sort of draw a line under a certain type of mistake, which is about Western-oriented policies in, in the Arab-speaking world. As you say, the the, the modern part of the of the play uh, or the contemporary part of the play uh, takes place in in a British university with, mm. with academics trying to work out the history of, of Islamism mm. and of the Brotherhood in particular. Mm. Um, I don't know if there was a, speaking as an academic, uh, <laughs> whether there's anything about academia that you want, I mean, in general terms, you know, the responsibility of academics, mm, the, the, mm. The, the problems academics face in, in, in reading and translating history. Yeah, I mean, it starts from something more particular, doesn't it, in the sense that I was very interested in this whole uh, kind of climate of fear uh, that kind of, um, in a sense, descended on British universities, particularly after the so-called underpants bomber, uh, who was at UCL, I think. Mm. And, and clearly, suddenly, this... Before. The, yeah, before, yeah. yeah. This sense of um, responsibility to, in a sense, monitor your students, um, the pressure that places, obviously, on um, the free exchange between um, the, the kind of person who's supervising a PhD, for instance, and a PhD student. I mean, all of the... I mean, it fascinates me. I've never done a PhD, so I've never found myself cast on that wide ocean of... Uh, it must be terrifying in some respects, and, I, and, and, and certainly I've witnessed somebody doing one um, close to hand. But, you know, no, I certainly work with MA students, and I've often felt the tensions and difficulties of that relationship, the psychological needs that inform that relationship. And when you, when you add into that uh, those wider anxieties about radicalisation... Um, uh, and also, of course, 
I mean, Philip in this instance is a, is come hot foot from working in American University of Cairo. And so there's this implication, certainly from Layla, that he has been on the wrong side or certainly within an institution that's been associated with the Mubarak regime. Um, and there are lots of terrifying and scary aspects of that, whether it was snipers on the roof shooting at people on Tahrir Square from their campus uh, buildings, whether it was the case that in one instance, as I understand it, uh, there was a kind of uh, a kind of senior member of the university whose job was to um, kind of monitor the students' political affiliations. And some people certainly ended up in prison as a consequence of that. And so, you know, I know the American University Curry, from what I understand it, and having met some people working there, is a complex institution. But we also know that universities are part of the societies which they uh, sit within and that's very politicized clearly in, in in places like Cairo but also in London too I mean the other thing that was in my mind was of course LSE and yeah. their relationship with Muhammad you know uh, Gaddafi and uh, Saeed Gaddafi and uh, some of the things that came out about David Hale various other kind of members of staff there all of which I can sort of understand the train of thought and why things ended up as they did but uh, and I also know that a lot of money is coming to British universities from um, various you know, kind of states and countries and interest groups, which mean that they are kind of implicated in a kind of global geopolitical uh, balance of power. And it's very difficult to step away from that. And I'm, I'm not excluding UEA from that, incidentally. You know, it's clearly one of those issues for... Um... There are two academics in your play. There's, mm. there's, the, there's the white one, mm, Philip, mm, mm. and then there's an, a, an Arabic yes, one, yes, isn't there? yes. Um, and they both seem, and they both seem, yeah, they both mm. seem quite aware of, of of the problems you mentioned. Yes, don't yes, they? yes. They're not sort of uh, willing or ignorant, as it were, partners. In, no, in this. no. Um, uh, so, so that's quite a complicated uh, situation that you're describing there. Yes, um, yes. Another issue of translation, really, isn't just describing live revolutionary or live live change. Yeah, uh, yes. In in a in, in, a, in a, let's call it a revolutionary society, yes. describing that in an institutional environment, yeah, uh, which is you know w- what they're trying to do each in their own way. I yes, think. yes. Um, so, so, and as an academic, Philip is also seduced by the letters that you mentioned. Mm, isn't mm, he? mm, he's mm, kind mm, of mm. Uh, he's thinking of a, of a new source, yes, uh, that, which which is actually compromised because it's coming from. Uh, from an Islamist herself, who yeah. with, with an agenda of the kind you mentioned before, so there's all these really complicated negotiations, yes, yes. translations from one culture to another, and from one institutions to other, and mm-hmm, all sorts mm, of things mm, that you're mm, examining mm. in the play, I think, as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, Nazir, uh, who is in effect a, an exile, uh, was a very important. I mean, funny enough, he may not survive in subsequent versions of the play, but he was a very important part of the meaning of the play mm. in the sense that he. You know, you, you, if you only had Leila and Philip, um, you you would find, I think, it difficult to resist the logic of some of the things she's saying. And, and, and obviously she has a very compelling logic, and that's part of the drama, is to sort of take her very seriously indeed. Uh, on the other hand, you know, what's interesting about Nazir, who's modelled on a very particular person, is that um, his fate under even under Mubarak's regime, was to be, in a sense, hounded out of his institution, um, in, you know, driven into exile, in his particular case, um, causes a break with his wife. And um, it, it, it's... On what grounds? Or well, I mean, in particular instances, as I say, he's modelled on a, a real yeah. case. Uh, I'm struggling to remember the name of the person involved. Um, but in this particular instance, he was a, a Quranic scholar, 
and this was in the mid 90s I think mm. and he uh, back to translation again so mm. he was ar- arguing exactly. I think for a slightly looser um, and less dogmatic vision of what translation of the Quran might be and how it might translate into contemporary values um, and all of this was Okay. Sort of moderate Islamist. Moderate Islamist, exactly. Yeah. Well, moderate, well, not even <clears throat> Islamist, I, would, I suppose a moderate Islamic scholar. Okay. Um, and then, you know, this is where it gets complicated. One of his scholar, one of his colleagues, uh, he had to kind of, he was being promoted, I think, or he was certainly going up for renewal, mm. let's say. And his colleagues had to then comment on his track record. And there were various people who didn't like him and also professionally were kind of at odds with him. And they decided that his work was heretical. That should have gone no further than that, and obviously it was personally driven. It was then referred up, I think, to the highest kind of Islamic authority in the land, the Al-Azhar, I think, the Mufti in Al-Azhar, uh, who had to make a kind of judgment. And the judgment came out along the lines of he was an apostate, in effect. Mm. Um, and the way it worked through this lobbying, relentless lobbying of the Islamic courts, was that um, his wife would have to divorce him because he was an apostate. Um, and and indeed that came to pass, and I think they both in the, this instance ended up in the Netherlands. So there, there is this diaspora mm. of not exactly radical scholars mm. who are attempting to kind of talk detail and, and, and opening up a slightly looser way of kind of thinking about um, what the Quran means in, in current reality. Um, and I felt that was important to honour in the play. I but of course, right. it also makes for somebody who is dangerously close to the neocon worldview because there's a degree to which Nazir is hardly going to be unharmed and undamaged by those experiences. So there's the, the quality of paranoia in the play is uh, egged on, really, I suppose, by Nazir's genuine fear for his own well-being. Um, and I suppose Philip's... On, from both wings. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yes. And Philip's liberalism <clears throat> is what the play kind of examines. You know, is it... Does it work? Um, I, I, I essentially feel that Philip's decisions are largely, I mean, there's a careerist quality to it, but there's a degree to which, for all of his flaws, he makes a good decision to sort of stay with Layla. Um, and and that Nazir is, is a council of doom, even though it comes out of a completely valid, comprehensible context. It, it is, in a sense, more terror, more oppression, is the implication of his way of handling this problem. Philip uh, sticks with Layla both as an educationalist, doesn't he? He's, he is trying to, act, as it were, get a good PhD. <laughs> yeah, get yes, somebody who yes. actually thinks on her own, promote that sort of value of independent thought. Yeah, yes. Uh, the other thing that he does is abandon his book on Couture. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Which I thought was a, a dramatic gesture as well. Not yeah. so much abandoned, but you know, thinking of redoing it altogether. Yeah, yes. Uh, on on yeah. the basis of. Uh, I suppose a, a much more complex lived experience. Mm, mm, um, mm, mm. So I think he is. He, he stands up quite well for for, for liberalism. Yeah. Uh, as 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 opposed to you know research deadlines or, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yes. Um, yes. Um, but and impact. Impact. I, I <laughs> guess. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you could say that. Uh, well, I mean, I suppose he's he's he's, he's got a. a, a he invests proper value into impact, mm, which, which mm, is uh, mm. which is getting things right, I, I guess. Yes. Um, uh, the, the the other um, aspect of of, of Nazir's uh, input into the play is is, is that he brings in uh, the whole Facebook uh, mm-hmm. uh, discourse mm, 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 uh, mm, mm. and the way uh, uh, revolutionary thinking of all kinds and and and, and of all and you know the various wings and the various extremes mm, uh, mm. is is just simply invaded and, and, yes. and carried on a kind of enormous 
digital wave on, yes. on Facebook pages. Yes. Um, and that frightens him quite a lot as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yes. Yeah, Rightly, well, I think... Perhaps, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, as somebody who's a complete Facebook virgin, <laughs> uh, but certainly, you know, we've certainly seen the, the different sides of Facebook and Twitter over the uh, during the Arab Spring. It's become a cliche in a way, but there's no doubt that it was a vital tool in those instances. And whatever, angst, you know, whatever kind of questions I have about it as a sort of citizen of the West, it, it had an incredible role to play in that case and will continue to do so. But I think the difficult thing is, and particularly in this context in the play, is the way in which it becomes this great rumour mill. Um, you know, at one point there's this kind of uh, home details pages hacked into and various kind of allegations of connections to Mossad and stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, those things are very difficult to um, disprove, to fight back against. I think the way in which kind of different forms of authority therefore circulate through social media, um, which and also just the whole turnover of knowledge that occurs in there as opposed to much slower progress of uh, intellectual activity of, of any nature, uh, you know, that is definitely a siege, isn't it? I think one of the things that higher education is really um, having to kind of deal with is the, those different tempos not only in higher education, I think all institutions which have a degree of power and responsibility are faced with this torrent of tittle-tattle in some cases. And, 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 and especially the anonymity of a lot of that text is clearly makes it quite a, uh, a dangerous realm of half-knowledge, if you like. Um, Perhaps one of the things about translation is that it does introduce that, that temporal dimension that you mentioned there. You know, you, mm, it, mm. it does take time to translate one text into another. Yes. Uh, and yes. therefore to think about it and therefore to think about what's lost or gained in translation. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, very rapid dissemination is, is almost atemporal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and I mean, the space for thinking. I yeah. mean, that, that's, you know, I think about translation is you're meditating on meanings and you you know you, you you locate a word you find an equivalent then you have to find the context for the equivalent i mean it's a big job and yeah. i think it's probably one of the purest forms of social thought there is really yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah there's not much patience for that over yeah. Reminds me of going back to Mignana for a second. There's another mm. thing I, I, I picked up in in what he says about dramatic writing and uh, language uh, um, uh, how how to take spoken language, ordinary language, into dramatic writing. Mm. Um, he says something about, uh, in, in, in ordinary, you know, ordinary speech, um, uh, in French, or, or s'adresse, you know, you, you, talk, you talk to one another, you're addressing mm. each other, mm. you're not necessarily mm. communicating. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> that was a, you know, a, a wonderful way of putting it, actually. Yes, and, and, yes, yes. Uh, um, you know, just a, just a manipulation of, a, of an ordinary French usage, but you know, mm. actually addressing each other, not necessarily communicating yes. at all, in, in, even in the most ordinary situation. Which, of course, know. makes you think of Pinter as well. And, yes. You know, and also, I was thinking yeah. your earlier yeah. uh, quotation from him reminded me of T.S. Eliot's version of Malame, you yeah. know, to purify the dialect of the tribe. I mean, that's Quite his so. vision of poetry. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the stage certainly does that. You... you, you you know, I feel a lot of my plays, you feel a particular idiom enters yes. into the theatre and that's one of my roles, perhaps as a mm. translator, is mm. to sort of bring into theatre a register of language or, a, you know, because I find myself very gripped by a whole new language in effect, mm. but it's often a kind of intellectual language or a, a political language or whatever. And different generations as well are often in, in play, in mm. play, as mm. it were. I mean, I, I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about Little Platoon. Yes, right. Uh, yeah. Which is a, a play about setting up an academy. Mm. Um, 
and which has uh, different generations involved. Yes. Uh, and the, 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 the purely <coughs> idiom quality of, of different generations. Mm, and, uh, mm. Because there are there are school children, you know, late school children. There's a, yeah. there's a teenager, yeah. and there are uh, forty year old people mm, mm. trying to start up the the, the, the academy, mm, mm, who mm. also drawn from different backgrounds. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, the sh- I just wanted to invite you to say something yeah. about the range of different languages that you were or idioms that you were bring bring in there. Yeah, well, that was an interesting <clears throat> case. I mean, Little Platoons particularly was one of those extremely. Uh, topical endeavours you know in a sense I set out I was invited by the bush to in advance of um, the new government whatever it was going to be in May 2010 we we, how little we knew of what that government might be but whatever it was going to be I was going to try and engage with that in quite an immediate fashion I should say this play was 2011 yes 2011 so and ignorance was 2009 yeah well actually no that was 2012 I mean even more recent so so it seemed to me at that point that the most interesting, uh, on a fairly bleak uh, landscape of ideas, the only kind of thing that interested me within the Conservative Party, which I imagined would form the next government, was their education policies. Not because I agree with them, but just because there seemed to be some kind of uh, idea at work there, which was very expressive, I think, of their values, and particularly Michael Gove, who I saw in action at some terrible conference I went to shortly before the election, which was... Very revealing. It was a sort of it was run by the Spectator, which kind of gives you the flavour of the thing. And uh, I mean, it was probably March twenty ten, so two months before the election. But it felt to me like the vandals camped on the hills outside Rome. You know, it was you know this was a government in waiting, and they were talking education, and you had all these different communities. Perhaps linking to the language question, you mm. had business. Uh, big time people who want to set chains of academies were already doing that free schools who were mentioned in the play who mentioned in the play and then you had the politicians um, and largely of a conservative disposition Um, and then yes a strand which was one that really interested me which was the parents as it were Um, and uh, they're all speaking a very different language actually even in that context in a sense you've got the kind of techno kind of globalization mm. type language that you get from the business sector, mm. which actually is coming at it from a completely different direction from the Gove sort of um, reactionary kind of traditionalist kind of discourse. And then parents somewhere in between, if you like. Um, so, yeah, I thought this is a hot potato. And it interests me as a former school teacher, somebody, you know, like yourself with children in schools. Um, and very aware at the level of anxiety and anger that I witness on a daily basis from my peer parents and and uh, what is that all about? You know, what is it all about? I mean, that's always the question, isn't it? Uh, but as you say, Tim, I mean, the real challenge was to locate this in a real living language of contemporary London because I knew it had to be this play about London because that was the sort of... Girls Walk Road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. West, yeah. not only London, but West London, yeah. uh, which was, you know, that's where the bush was located, so it seemed really <clears throat> pertinent to just literally walk the streets around there and talk to people in that area. And, of course, most particularly Toby Young, uh, who's the journalist um, most closely connected to that with the spectator and personal friend of David Cameron, Michael mm. Gove, etc., was setting up his own school, West London Free mm. School, uh, as we wrote. So it seemed an ideal opportunity to shadow contemporary experience in a very, very particular way. But, of course, London is this absolute babel of language idiom. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's exciting about it. And I should argue, I should say that this there was a season which this sat within called the school 
season. It was called the school season at the Bush Theatre. And there was another play called The Knowledge, which was by a chap called John Donnelly. Lovely play. And it centred on a group of sort of really difficult kids uh, in a school actually in Tilbury, I think it was meant to be. Um, so you had, we had a sort of young black guy, a uh, young Asian girl, a white girl, you know, so very much like that wonderful film, The Class, um, mm. but at, more comic, perhaps, in approach. So I knew I had this kind of company of actors um, that I wanted to honour in this play at some point, but also knew that, that they're going to be busy with this other show. So, as you know, they appear very late in the day and kind of tear the whole thing apart. And and it was that joyous thing where I kind of knew they would tell me what my lines ought to be as much as me giving them lines. Um, so, uh, you know, I had a crash course in sort of street idiom. I've already forgotten most of it. Um, but, I, you know, that's the one thing about theatre, isn't it, that you... You create structures and narratives and characters, and then you you meet the actors. Mm. And and luckily, we had time in the rehearsal process to permit some play in that respect to allow all those languages their own kind to honour all those different languages because you know that would instantly um, kind of signal to an audience that there was something kind of awry if you'd sort of done some lame thing where you'd attempted to invent that in the sort of isolation of your study. Yeah, as well as uh, actors like playwrights, so it's, it's, it's stock in trade to listen yes. to different, uh, different, different idioms, different ways of saying things to different people. Yeah, yes. And uh, I suppose, you know, you or I wouldn't be talking this way if we were talking to someone else either. No, you know, absolutely, this, absolutely. You know, I mean, theatre uh, is, that's what it's about. It's about yeah. registers, isn't it? It's yeah. about the sort of social genres of language. Yeah. And I, I think... I mean, you know, one of the writers I admire the most, someone like Carol Churchill, she has an extraordinary ear for all of the different genres of language out there. Um, and yet she remains a very distinctive voice in her own right. And I think that fascinates me, that how that could occur, you know. Mm. Um, because obviously also, as with the Mignana quote, there's a degree to which all those languages are tools. Uh, and, I, and, and Little Patoons, which is a comedy, is about the incommunicability and the incommensurability of these languages in play mm. with each other. So that's a large source of the, the sort of wit in the play. I mean, in fact, probably the thing that brought the house down every night was a civil servant um, uh, who's called Polly, I think, in the play. And, and Typically quite young, your civil Very, yeah, yes. I've seen to notice. They're all well, in their 30s, aren't they? It's scary, isn't it? I mean, Senior, in their 20s but, in some cases. Right, I mean, yeah. you know, this actually somebody said to me after, well, your civil servant's a bit young. And I said, well, like, uh, let me introduce you to some. I mean, because I'd actually, the, the, she was inspired by, I met this young woman called Rachel Wolf, who runs this thing called the New School Network, she used to, which was quite controversial because they were given the brief by Michael Gove quite wrongly and illegally, I think. I don't want to say anything that's legal, you know, uh, subject to litigation, but certainly, very questionably, they were handed the keys um, to handle the free school uh, rollout. And yet, you know, Rachel is a delightful person, but she's probably 24, 23. She was Boris Johnson's advisor. She was, you know, she's a big player, uh, an, an extraordinary youthful age. Now her dad's Martin Wolf, the journalist, and her mum's Alison Wolf, the kind of senior academic. But... Uh, I wanted to honour this strange world in which you have uh, power being operated by these young mandarins who master a language effectively um, and it's a strange fusion of political correctness, uh, new labour delivery speak and something much more kind of threatening <laughs> um, set up against these sort of rather half-baked confused parents who are kind of an amalgam of different values and um, and, and that encounter really fascinated me and amused me as well. And, um, 
and again, it was part of what the play's energy is about, is this kind of extraordinary idiolects, if you like, that are all kind of um, rubbing up against each other. And, and I've noticed in, in, the, in the way you get to the, the, these young uh, civil servants to talk that... Uh, uh, you know, you mentioned something more threatening, but it's 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 a fantastic, uh, if I may say so, fantastic sort of development mm, in, in mm, play because mm. they, they they look rather, you know, as you say, when they appear, they look rather uh, by now, you know, new labels become yeah. rather passe, yeah. and, yes, and, they, yes. and, and they look dressed up in that sort of language, and, mm. and they actually start to manipulate people, don't mm, they, mm, mm, uh, with language and. Uh, and uh, the, the positions they're adopting don't need to be stressed or made in, in a language other than this uh, uh, vapid blackberry type of language. Mm, it's it's mm, just they're mm. using it to manipulate. People. Yes, yes. And uh, I thought that was very well captured. I think mm, you know mm. you don't need you know powerful people that necessarily need to you know lay down the line. They're no. just uh, positioning people. Yes, with language. Yes. Well, I mean, isn't this the whole? debate we have at the moment which you know where we have the clowns you know UKIP and so forth what do they represent they represent a rupture in that language um, for something which is you know desperately depressing and null and void in terms of intellectual content but it seems to be the language of real speech it's like words with <laughs> real language of real men um, and in a world where the political class have been totally bound up in a sort of non-referential you know, policy speak, and I mean, it's fascinating how it doesn't matter what political party is in, that same language reasserts itself, mm. and it's very difficult to speak outside of that language, and it is mm. hermetic, I think. Mm. And also in Little Platoons, uh, the, the, the various people setting up the school, mm. um, uh, they seem to be talking the same at the beginning, they seem mm. to be talking the same broadly middle-class language of, mm. uh, you know, doing right by our children and, and, and that sort of thing. Yes. Uh, uh, and but even within that middle class discourse, they, they, their own language starts to starts to actually emerge. Like yes. the opposite of what I was saying about your civil servants. Yeah, with, yeah, with this yeah. lot, they actually the, their language, although although they're sharing an idiom, it mm. also differentiates them. Yes, uh, yes, yes. You know, what, some of them are more interested in in uh, you know in getting companies that, to, to supply mm. the services. Mm. Uh, some are more interested in, in something something more touchy feely, which yeah. is to you know promote the individuality of the child. Yeah. Some are interested in targets. Some are some are interested in understanding. Mm. It's mm. a it's a it's a huge maelstrom of, of, of different values. <laughs> yes, yes, all covered in this same. Shepherd's Bush, West London idiom. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> yes, it's 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 the language that's making these ideas uh, um, not only vibrant but confusing. Yeah, I think that's far more eloquently put than I can put it. I mean, I think that it's partially about middle classness, isn't it? What is middle classness? And I think you know, education is probably the place in which that's most clearly brought into focus. Mm. Um, and you know, in the play, you've got. Rachel, who uh, you know, comes out of a sort of left liberal version of middle classness. Um, you know, she is a teacher. She's lived in West London. They've somehow managed to keep hold of her flat, um, and but those values are in tatters, and not least because her relationship is broken up and her husband's moved on. And so you you have this kind of crisis within a certain sort of Guardian reading left liberal kind of idiolect, which obviously I would probably situate myself within set against uh, the world of Nick uh, and his wife, um, which is a much more bohemian uh, kind of reactive, 
sensuous, funny language, but it's also really objectionable. Um, but it, it is part of that sort of emergent sort of post-political correctness, I suppose, that um, is manifest in some of the figures, such as Toby Young and, and others around the spectator, that sort of needling, challenging, uh, heretical language, which of course plays very powerfully in the theatre. I mean, it's always a tricky thing if you are a left dramatist, even if you don't even describe yourself as such, that, you know, your values right white, and there's a degree to which the character that is like the vice figure in mid medieval theatre, everybody loved Nick, you know, or they hated him. You know, it's one or the other, and because he seems to speak the truth. And Plus political correctness is at once the voice of truth and, and, and mm. the, vo the voice of reaction. I mean, it's mm. hard to distinguish the two, isn't it? Yeah. In that idiolect, as you say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 you know, I think partially what you're doing with writing, what I like, to, I mean, I love in the theatres, I like candour and I like characters who are exceptionally kind of brave in the way they try and articulate their situation. And I think that intensity of truthfulness you know of course it's a very arguable term but you feel it with an actor hits your text mm -hmm. um it's very exciting in fact the scene that one of my favorite scenes of play is just a chat really between rachel and nick in a pub yeah. but with, with claire price who played rachel and, and andrew woodall played nick just completely invested in that and it was a very passionate rachel's a school teacher yeah actually. school teacher exactly. head teacher of the new Academy. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. music teacher yes that's right <laughs> uh, you know well of course everything music in a way is this wonderful cultural totem um yeah. and uh you know in some respects i think it is right on the nerve endings of middle class yeah. parents because in a way you know you can't fake it uh, it seems to speak for a much more um, um, unapologetically traditionalist mode of pedagogy. And, yeah. you know, so there's something about loss of value in that sphere and the, the notion that that's somehow outside of time and history and politics, which I'm very sympathetic to, too. So it, it seemed an interesting choice of a teacher. Um, but very politicised in the play. And, and, yes. And, uh, and uh, on cultural lines as well as political lines, it's divisive. Yeah. I think music in the play is divisive in all those ways. Yes, that's it? right, as because well it becomes being... an admission, you know, a, a kind of uh, musical aptitude becomes a way of filtering people mm. entering into this school. I mean, this mm. is something, again, West London Free School, I'm sure, would disagree, but that's a, certainly a, something I've observed in a lot of academies and free schools is they use notions of aptitude, which is, of course, often notions of uh, privilege in some respects, because, you know, aptitude age 11 or 10 means presumably lots of music lessons pre that point. Now, OK, they may test it in all sorts of ways, um, but there's no doubt that the thinking is to kind of have a reserve quality to the population, a, a large percentage, which is, if you like, signed up to a cultural project. One which I would feel very happy that my children were signed up to, too, so I don't want to be hypocrite about this, but, you know, it does still give the lie to the idea that these schools are for everybody. I think it's very ironic uh, your your choice of music as a fulcrum of the play, because mm. you know, very in a very traditional manner and, and you know archetypal manner, music is thought of as the untranslatable language, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas, which 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 is part of its strength mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and power to to you know set the imagination going and and the critical intellect as well. Yes. Uh, whereas in the play, it's it's being translated all the time mm -hmm. into various mm -hmm. ideological positions. Yeah, yeah. Some of which overlap, and many of which don't. Yeah, yes, um, yes. And of course, you know, in 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 the other thing that tends to take that role in this debate is Latin, which is interesting, yeah. you know, um, because it's a. Uh, you know, of course, who could argue with Latin? And I don't. And I want every child have that available to them but the social meaning of Latin mm. is something else again isn't it mm. um, and the way that 
again, as I say, Toby Young manipulates that as something which he sets against a, a world of diversity and what he believes to be you know, politically correct. Mm. To me, response is just to the reality of the children that walk through the door of the school. Mm. For him, they're, they're, it's a kind of dogma of a kind of version of modern England, which he's mm. in flight from or mm. resisting. You know. So, yeah. Can I t- talk to you a little bit about the title as well, Little mm. Platoons? Uh, it's a it's a phrase from David Cameron's speech on the big society, mm. but it's also a phrase, obviously borrowed from Edmund Burke. Yes, um, and I just wanted to go back to that historical dimension mm. I was talking mm. to you about before that we were discussing before. Uh, there is that kind of I, feel, I do sense in in, in the, mm. the you know the plays that I've read and, and you know thinking about today that there is a kind of sense of of the collapse of history and that mm. we in coming through your writing we don't we don't actually tra- when we translate historical experience we translate it into present concerns more yeah. or less yes more or less violently perhaps yes you know well that's um, the 18th rumor of louis whatever it was uh, louis napoleon was it um, the, napoleon, yeah. yes marx's text you know his tragedy playing as fast i mean i think well i mean i'm no expert in Edmund Burke, but uh, I was just reading John Gray's review of um, Jesse Norman, who's one of the key coalition sort of figures. He just written a book about Burke, mm. and and Gray was, you know, offering quite an interestingly nuanced sense of why he was almost totally irrelevant to the contemporary conservative project. Irrelevant. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It was certainly mm. out of step, out of mm. keeping, because clearly, as you say, you know, what is your history? I mean, Burke is the man who stood up for the American Revolution and the person who resisted the French Revolution. You know, he's a complex figure. Exactly. You know, and I, I feel. I, you know that that quote about uh, we we you know we learn our affections in the little platoons of the family and then we we go from a step from the family to society and that vision of civil society and the chain of links between individual social experience um, is a, a very appealing idea to me in in a way maybe there's a version of conservatism with a tiny c that is you know something to be engaged with and perhaps Burke represents that because he's clearly on that sort of cusp of conservative liberalism, Whiggism, you know, he's, he's, he's all of those things, which is certainly not the case for those who take his name in vain now. Uh, but clearly there's something about Little Platoons, which is comic. And I mean, big society became such a boring kind of, you know, buzz phrase, catchphrase. Um, and of course it's disappeared fascinatingly now because it hasn't come to pass. Um, well, but, Perhaps they're not living a time where little platoons can make big, big ones. No, well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, the, the sort of again, it's back to utopianism, isn't it? There's a degree to which Gove and others um, m- sort of encourage and mobilise an energy of discontent within lower middle class parents or middle class parents. They offer them a vision that they can take back control of this complex globalised world. I mean, the free school. Uh, whole idea of it is a chimera, I think, you know, and that's what I want to examine in the play because, as you initially said, it was about establishment of the academy. Of course, it is about that actually, but the free school uh, kind of um, stalking horse, which is in effect a way in which the process of academization can be accelerated, and ultimately, I think, to be honest, the the kind of privatization of the British education system can be accelerated, which is what I think is the long game that Gove is playing. Um, is a is a fraud because the idea that parents will really be able to wrest control back of all these um, institutional arrangements and remain participants in that is is very appealing actually and I feel the appeal of it because I feel the appeal of civil society engagement and so forth but I feel it's um, 
being rather cynically manipulated in this instance. Um, but it's still to be taken seriously as an idea, and it is a Burkean idea. You know, kind of what ownership do we have over our social institutions? Can we engage? What does it mean to be a governor or a, somebody who sets up some kind of local charitable endeavour? Mm. Um, and, and, and as the state retreats or is being dismantled, probably is a better way of describing it, what does it mean then if we step into that breach? Um, but of course, we can't. Um, and you know, we can already see the implications of that. Yes. I mean, I suppose you can't you can't uh, wrest control to back back to the individual from big uh, you know much bigger constructions <coughs> and also earn a living. No, no, um, no. Because there are only twenty four hours in the day. That's right. And uh, I mean, as you say, it's 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 not, it's not just about taking taking signs on this. It's it's it's, it's a question of uh, very you know complex ambitions. Mm, I think mm, that, that mm. affect everyone. Yes. Uh, uh, about the nature of well, about the nature of the choices that we're able to make mm, uh, mm. for our children and for ourselves, and yes, um, what society is possible to actually envisage being built by individuals in relation to a larger grouping. Yes, well, that's the thing I think that's going back to the sense of the anxiety of the parents mm. that we certainly find ourselves in a situation where we know there are no support networks. Well, there there will be fewer and fewer um, that we are set against each other in a much more uh, aggressive fashion and that therefore our efforts on the behalf of our children and so forth have taken on this new intensity um, and I think that's that's the thing I was trying to diagnose I suppose in that Blair Explore mm. uh, of course of which I'm not immune from that mm. you know because there's something both positive and negative about fam familial values mm. um, and um, you know, one always gets a bit uneasy when pol politicians invoke them. Um, but, you know, they are the day-to-day -day reality we have, and they are the, you know, in a sense, they've always been a factor, obviously, in social mobility. But it seems to be that's got to a particularly intense level now, with the way in which I suppose everything that fascinates me is the liquidation of the middle classes, in a way. You know, you feel like Nick in, 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 is an evidence of that. You know, he would have been probably some sort of, um, you know, kind of, bibulous journalists on it you know you've probably made a living 20 30 years ago you know written for small journals somehow had a life you know I feel like the possibilities of a certain type of bohemianism the possibilities for a certain type of um, middle-class indifference to money and monetary values and so forth is is gone you know in every area of professional life uh, particularly uh, you know in journalism and all those desirable professions that are completely under the cosh it seems to me so that idea of survival has become much more kind of vivid for a lot of people that's much more immediate well coming to the end of our time i think oh, but, but, but i wanted to talk to you a little bit about mm. uh, another you know great issue of the day that mm. you've engaged with which is climate change mm. and your magnificent event coming up in uea this <laughs> saturday mm. which will be the, the 25th yes. concert of yes. may called writing climate change uh, where you're bringing thinkers together, on, thinkers on climate change mm. together with with playwrights and, and practitioners. Yes, uh, which is a you know an exercise in translation <laughs> in itself. I, yeah. I would think. Yes. Uh, so, I, would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yes, I, I, I you know, uh, I, I, I'm very excited about it. I mean, I, I, as as you say, I joined University of East Anglia last year, 2011, and I mean, one of the reasons, apart from the general reason of trying to earn some money, I, I wanted to work there was because of its dual reputation as a place which is 
very committed to creative writing and higher education and also clearly climate research um, with the climate research unit and school of environmental sciences and so on and um, I mean I wrote a diptych of plays called the contingency, contingency plan. plan yes back in what, 2008 2009 which you know have had a great deal of success and caused a lot of debate and I'm very you know still excited by the themes behind them and and, and the journey I went on to write the play so it, it it struck me it was interesting looking around at colleagues at UEA both in creative writing and elsewhere that you know across the different faculties and disciplines you could see people working at it from different fronts um, and I wanted to have a day which drew us all together in one space mm. to have a conversation also with people not from UA from outside um, and you know to start to sort of take the temperature of what is this literature what is the 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 kind of yeah the emergent literature of climate change um, and not just incidentally within um, as it were creative writing but also beyond that whether it's in journalism um, within science writing itself obviously of a more popularizing nature what are the what are the challenges that climate change presents to the act of communication now clearly at UEA that has a particular piquancy because of the events of 2009 uh, and climate so-called climate gate mm. um, so one of the kind of headline events I suppose on our day is bringing together well allowing creating a platform for Phil Jones who ran the climate runs the climate research unit and was horribly vilified during those very difficult months at the end of 2009 when much of his email correspondence was released to the media he had his head called for by George Monbiot and various other people in The Guardian, uh, found himself at the centre of this storm of attention, had to give an account of himself to a public select committee um, in the, you know, in the Houses of Parliament, um, was exonerated in every single front, but nevertheless, you know, no smoke without fire, back to our discussion about social media. And there's another instance of the ferocious um, kind of energy that's sort of circulating around particularly climate change research, um, which you know, kind of these foot soldiers, if you like, of, of the empirical activity that undermine, underpins a lot of the discussion about climate change are finding themselves under daily scrutiny, enormous pressures, I think. Um, and I'm not saying everything they did was right or, you know, that's not for us to adjudicate, but I do think that experience is very telling. So we've got Phil talking about that alongside a chap called Bob Ward who works um, at LSE in the Grantham Institute um, for Climate Change and Humanities. He's a sort of, I suppose he's a press secretary for Nicholas Stern, who came up with the Stern Review a few years ago um, about the economics of climate change. So we're looking at it in a journalistic way and thinking about the actual particular mediation of science to the public, particularly at points of great political change like the Copenhagen mediation Conference. stroke translation. Mediation stroke <laughs> translation, absolutely. I mean, you know, Phil's great plaint was, I wish they read my papers as opposed to my emails. <laughs> and there you have it, don't you? I mean, because... <laughs> Of course, they're never going to read your papers. They're going to read your emails. I mean, you know, we're not, but we're talking about papers in Nature and things like that. It's not just yeah. in in recondite journals. But the, the back to tempo questions. Mm. Um, that's a classic example of of something that has, unfolds over a long period of time through slow, very deliberative uh, endeavour within a university, but has when then hits the world at high speed, and of course has all those dramatic pressures of political change bearing down upon it um, so there's that but then the rest of the day um, I mean we have a keynote from Tony Juniper who I think is a fascinating figure in the way that he 
stands on the he's he's half activist he's he's a conservationist he's he's also a very eloquent writer he's but what has nature done for us to just come out so he's going to talk to that um but he's also in some circles a very controversial figure because in that book he started to talk about and again this is translation isn't it how to economize to a degree to look at nature through an economical prism to start to revalue it and this is the big debate isn't it at the moment whether it's to do with carbon pricing or to do with preserving uh, endangered habitats through market pricing uh, he didn't necessarily argue for that but certainly the book is tending in that direction whereas we have John Burnside speaking later in the day I think he's I don't know if he's particularly set against that but as a as a great poet of the wild um, he's very um, wants to ask questions I suppose about that relationship to nature to the natural world whether it should be perceived through economistic values and I will talk about the contingency plan. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a day where, as you say, we are talking about translation every panel, I think, because, uh, you know, there's layers of translation, there's the, the kind of raw data that is assembled in so many different spheres of scientific activity. You know, you're looking at every different scientific discipline, whether it's atmospheric chemistry, glaciology, uh, climatology, you know, the science, whatever it is, is incredibly various and diverse, and hence the sort of enormous uh, kind of confusion that gathers around those great IPCC briefings that happen every four years is clearly they are an attempt to take all of that scientific activity and then turn it into, translate it into some kind of coherent gesture. Mm. Um, you know, and they always end up with statements along the lines of it could be this or it could be that. If you carry on with business as usual, it's going to be like this. And so so that in itself is one layer of where noise enters into the process and feedback loops start to kind of um, develop. And then clearly with the within the creative act, um, I mean, I particularly think in my own area of theatre, you're taking really complex things and trying to resolve them into stories that work in the moment for an audience. They can't check your footnotes. They can't go back and have a look you know they, they, they haven't got if you like the luxury of reflection so there's a degree to which um you you you're exploiting that immediacy but you're also trying to nuance it in such a way that they aren't they aren't being cheated or deceived or manipulated well, i think once again there were for me the, the way you're doing it in the contingency plan is a at, at the level of language um, you know, the, 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 uh, which is inflected by generations, mm, mm. Uh, which is inflected by a sense of history yeah. uh, to, 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 to thought on climate and climate change, mm, mm, mm. Um, so, and which is all put into a, a rather affective mix as well, because there are family relations and yeah. sexual relations involved as well. Mm. Uh, so this is you, wonderful linguistic and theatrical, but for me, absolutely linguistic mix mm, of, of mm. the ideolo ideological and the affective. Mm, mm, the, mm. the, the stuff that is clearly um, motivated by the desire to establish a position. Yeah. And stuff that's motivated by internal turmoil mm. and, and, and a kind of odd mixture, very volatile mixture <laughs> of those two, I, I, yes. I think. Yes, I think that's again very well put. I mean, and of course, because it's a diptych, the genre is another interesting uh, factor because, uh, you know, if one isn't in two minds about climate change, then you're a very sort of single-minded person, it seems to be. And, and I felt that this was a play, this was an issue, and I don't, I can't even bear the word issue, but I say tissue, perhaps would be a better word. But this was, this was uh, a field of knowledge mm -hmm. uh, and, and a challenge which was, you know, broke the bounds of conventional dramaturgy. There's no way you could deliver this 
in a straightforward kind of conventionally operating play, in my view. So, a habitus is bored, you might call it. Yeah, a habitus, yes, absolutely. So something about the space between the two plays is very important, I think, to what the contingency plan means. In the idea that one play, as you suggest, is an intergenerational family tragedy, really, located very specifically in a part of North Norfolk and, and in real time, and this um, is on the beach. And then the other play, Resilience, is... Uh, a white hole farce in the middle of a disaster yeah. uh, or, or on, the, on, on the brink of a disaster and I think that's the other thing that I wanted to avoid direct representation of um, you know the sorts of things that shut the discussion down as it were you know waves breaking on shores and so forth because um, we are in the anteroom I think to that experience and that's I think what the plays mm. try to dramatise and even now even though they're four years old but it seems to me that one could easily restage it um, with with very little change, we, we seem to be in a very similar place. In fact, possibly we've taken a few steps back, although there is now 400 parts per million, I think, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So we've moved forward on that front, but not in others. Um, but yeah, I think genre itself is is something that kind of is is opened up by this issue. So you know, kind of, it may be that resilience begins as a farce, but it doesn't end as such. No. Uh, and I think that On the Beach too moves from a sort of family drama into a sort of thriller, really. I mean, something that's a philosophical thriller, I suppose, with Robin and Jenny face certainly their end, if not the end. Um, and it becomes a drama of the environment, I suppose, literally the the environment. Um, and how's I mean, that's the, the another thing about mediation, isn't it? How do you, particularly in theatre, which is such a verbal medium, how do you make environment manifest for the audience? Um, other than through people saying, well, there's a bird, or <laughs> it's a plant. Yeah. And that's, that's tricky. It's the appropriation of, of, of different approaches, different positions as well. It's mm. kind of the sort of, you know, the, the very, uh, very troubling notion, of the, the troubling aspect of mediation and therefore of translation. You know, yes. Of simply appropriating positions in, yes. in order to, I don't know what, not necessarily um, uh, malevolently, yeah, but to, to just to make some sort of progress, you know, mm, 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 the, the, the squeezing of, of, of different affective, ideological, historical, yes. scientific uh, bits of data mm. into a position which cuts off all the corners and which can be worked with. Yes, well, that's it, isn't it? I think it's the, you know, this is a play. This is a particular issue where science meets politics, and that's a very in, uneasy encounter it has to be and it's a language encounter yeah it's a language encounter I mean much of the comedy in resilience is precisely about so what does that mean in real terms <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. you know one meter of sea level rise well that sounds okay yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah so the, 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 the scientist then has to kind of step out of their uh, narrow idiolect and and start to kind of use metaphors start to embody their knowledge because um, it wants a good thing everybody wants to step out of their box yeah but it's it, it's it's not necessarily an accurate reflection of the box you're trying no, to express, is no. it? No, and I think your condition as a scientist... Not inaccurate either, but it's just volatile. It's volatile, it's really... And I, I think, you know, everything you meet when you meet people working in this field is, of course, as a professional scientist, the one f massive fear you have is to be inaccurate. I mean, you know that it's not possible to be 100% accurate, but you know that it's 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 also completely anathema to be 80% accurate mm. um, and yet politics requires you to be 50% accurate you know and I think that 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 seems to me again such a kind of uh, vibrant 
boundary between the worlds of politics, which, you know, in a sense, as we said earlier on, have a quite hermetic quality to them. There's a degree to which reality doesn't quite impinge on politics. It often invokes it, but in a way it operates in a way that's a bit sort of uh, at several removes from it. Whereas, funnily enough, science, which seems to be so ivory tower, is literally on the coalface of reality. But how you mediate measurements of ice cores to, you know, policy, taxation policy, that's going to be always a difficult mediation. I think we probably are coming to an end. I wondered if there's anything you, you wanted to say, or perhaps <laughs> you don't, uh, about um, how translation has uh, affected your work and, and, you know, informed your work in a, in a lively way. Mm. Well, I mean, there's a whole other topic which is to do with the project that I've been recently doing with fellow European writers, and that uh, has had an extraordinary impact, actually, just to actually create a multilingual piece of theatre. Mm. Uh, and to be in the presence of writers from Poland, Croatia and Germany. And again, as I was saying earlier on with Mignana, the, the encounter with different aesthetics, I think, is the thing that um, excites me most about um, what it means when you kind of step out of your cultural context. Um, and I, I, I think it's a really interesting ongoing question for British theatre particularly, which is tends to the insular and certainly tends to the Anglosphere, that um, you know how you puncture that and how you create channels, use that term, to constantly sort of bring into our tradition things into our bloodstream which are apparently you know so difficult for us to absorb, according to critics and others. Um, that that seems to me critical. And I think the last thing I was going to say is that yeah, it's translation. It's also what I suppose I would call interculturalism. I think there's a degree to which when I write, I try and go out of myself. I mean, it's a journey from one's own localised parochialism, recognising hopefully the strength of that, into a new territory. Uh, and actually that is the thing that excites me most about writing. Um, with all the caveats that you'll get it wrong and you'll misunderstand. And I mean, it's almost as if you make yourself a clown, if you like, of kind of, you know, to enable that... Um, that encounter to take place. But by the time you've hit the actors, directors and the audience, you've everybody's travelled. And mm. I think that's... If that's analogous, it seems to me, to a good act of translation, the degree of stepping out of your culture, out of your language, and then, you know, coming back into that language, um, having kind of met the other, uh, how you describe it, certainly something that is different from that language. I think theatre, at its best, should do that all the time. Thank you very much, Stephen, for uh, letting us into your theatre world today. Thanks, Thanks. so much. Thank you, Tim.